This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&As. I'm going to be processing this week's audio through Adobe Podcast, which I'll leave a link to based on your suggestions. And I wanted to mention it very quickly up front, both to explain why the audio may or may not be much different, but also because I think a lot of other people might benefit from tips like this. And it's kind of 50-50. Half of the people listening are like, will you shut up about audio? And the other half are like, oh, I could apply this to the stuff that I do. So, hey, you know, it is what it is. But I just think whenever you're in the pursuit of trying to do something better and help other people, it's, it's worth the unfortunate side effect of pissing off others. But anyway, let's jump in and see what we got for the Q&As this week. First up over on Patreon, Hayaso from Santiago City. Is that in Chile or is that in the Philippines? I know two of those. Or maybe I'm just tired and it's morning and I'm confusing stuff. Either way, both seem like cool places. So hello. Um, Hayaso has a question uh, looking for a recommendation on a USB controller decoder. They have a gem extractor and want to be able to connect USB controllers to their arcade boards. They know Ashenworks sells the DB15 to USB, but it's kind of expensive since they need two. They were also looking for the undamned ones, but can't find stock anywhere. Yeah, unfortunately. If they could find some like the USB decoder plus PCB, that would be great. Any recommendations or secret inside info? Um, no secret inside info. It's all right up on RetroRGB.com. But there is the, I believe it's the USB to DB15 and... and uh, vice versa are open source projects that are also available that you can purchase. So I'll leave a link to that. I believe we're about to do another quick write-up on one of the, the latest batches or something. So I would look into that. And depending on where you're located and your soldering skills and all that stuff, you might be able to just have a few of these made, like have some PCBs made and, and hand assemble them yourself. Or maybe there are sellers local to you that should be able to sell them on the cheap. But I'll leave uh, in case we don't have time to get the article up, I'll leave a post to at least a, a link to a Twitter post or something so you can get more info. But these are definitely products we've covered before. So I would just kind of check out what's local to you. And I think Games Care in Brazil also sells one. So depending on your location and the shipping, you might want to check out either of those. I'll try to just leave links to everything you need in the description. Next up, Tony Escobar recently purchased a Sega Saturn NTSC PAL RGBS BNC cable from Retro Gaming Cables and the fully shielded Insurrection Industries S-Video cable. They're currently using the S-Video cable on their PVM14L5 and it's gorgeous. They were wondering if I thought it was worth switching to the BNC RGB cables. They like their setup right now with their Saturn connected via S-Video and their analog DAC connected to RGB. It allows them to switch out the Super NT and Mega SG at the HDMI port rather than behind the TV at the BNC cable attachments. <clears throat> They're absolutely willing to do it if the payoff is worth it. So, I have two answers to you, Tony. First, if you didn't already own the extra Saturn cable, I would tell you leave well enough alone. You have a workflow that's easy, which is so important because if it takes longer to set up your equipment than it does to play a quick round or whatever game you're playing, you're never going to play it. And it's also a great solution, but you do already own the cable. So what I would suggest is just take 
when you know you have some extra time to kill and you're not in a rush, play through a game, especially if it's a game where, you, you know, you start from the beginning a lot, like NBA Jam, a couple rounds of Mortal Kombat, whatever. But play a game where you could play a few rounds of it and then pause, switch to the beginning, whatever else, and then swap the cables and see for yourself. My guess is going to be that workflow is going to win over any sharpness that you gain because it's so easy for you to switch back and forth between these. But you never know. Maybe it's one of those things where you say, hey, every time I play the Saturn version of OutRun, I want to take the time to set up the RGB cable so it looks like an even better version of the arcade. Or maybe it doesn't matter at all. So my advice to you is just take a moment to give it a try, but I think you're probably going to stick with the more efficient workflow. But my advice to anybody else in the similar situation would be don't spend money on the cable unless you feel like you're missing something or unless it would add more functionality. If you have a setup that you already love and is already great, I try to be very respectful of people's money and the suggestions that I make. So, you know, when I when I talk about an $8 tool that you'll probably use four or five times a year, yeah, spend the money. And even if you only end up using it twice a year, it's eight bucks. It's going to pay for itself fairly soon. But stuff like this, you know, a fully shielded cable is like 50 bucks. So I wouldn't tell people to go out and get one of those if they already have an excellent solution. But you already have it. So I would definitely give it a try, Tony. And if you want, post post your thoughts here, and I'd love to, to share them with everybody. Maybe my guess is wrong. Maybe you're going to go, holy shit, that's going to be the best upgrade I've ever done for my Saturn. I love it. Or maybe you're just going to go, no, nah, I like the workflow, but I'd love to hear your opinion on it. Weaslow has a Dreamcast that they're connecting to a RetroTINK 5X, and they're not able to get video past the boot logo. They have it running through an RGB to comp and then going through a G-Comp switch because that's the only SCART cable they own, so why would they have anything different? You could just very easily automate it by doing it that way and have everything going right into the tank. However, they did plug it directly into the SCART port on the retro tank. So that leaves three points of failure to this. The Dreamcast itself, of course. The RetroTINK 5X, although... Less likely, I'll get back to that in a second, and then of course, the cable. So the first step, if possible, would be to just try a composite video cable or any other cable that you might have for the Dreamcast on any device or display, anything. The laggiest, crappiest display, doesn't matter, you're just looking to see if you get a signal past the boot screen. I'm assuming that you will, but that's gonna be an important point of failure. If you don't have another cable, maybe you have access to another Dreamcast, that would be cool to test just in case. Then you might want to test the SCART ports, but there's two issues with that. First, you don't have a second SCART cable, but also the likelihood of the RGB to comp and the RetroTINK 5X's SCART ports being bad, both of those is almost impossible. It's not impossible, but it's near impossible. Whereas just a bad SCART port on one might be very plausible. You never know what's going to happen in shipping and stuff like that. However, my gut's telling me it's probably an issue with the cable. But I want to be very clear that this does not reflect upon the cable manufacturer. It probably is something to do with shipping or, no disrespect to you, misuse. I think you would classify how I use these cables as misuse because you're supposed to plug these things into your setup and leave them alone. And I'm my setup is never the same for more than like a day. So I'm constantly beating up on my cables and they all have been lasting a long time. So it's it's one of those things where 
you know, maybe somebody took a perfectly well-built cable, put it into a good package, and then somehow in the shipping process, it got flung around like a Frisbee and something cracked and broke. So if I would test the Dreamcast first just because, but then I would pop open the SCART head on the retro access cable, take a bunch of pictures with your cell phone, use good lighting if you can, and zoom in on those pictures and see if you see anything obvious. Is there damage? Is a wire popped off, shorting two points? You know, and I would also, if you can't see anything obvious that's easy to fix, you know, if a, if a wire broke, just solder it back on. I would also send those pictures to Retro Access and see what they have to suggest about it. Because, you know, it's it's one of these things where I always see both sides and try to be fair. Let's just say, hypothetically speaking, this cable's two years old. Retro Access is under no obligation to fix that cable. But at the same time, I know I, I do understand that you have a cable that you bought that's not working. But they're they're pretty good about that stuff. They might give you some tips. They might offer to have it sent back if it's within a reasonable period of time. So, yeah, I would just go down it, all of the extra troubleshooting steps. You already removed the uh, RGB to comp, which is great. But I would just continue to go down the line and test until you could really nail down that it's definitely the cable and then kind of just go from there. So anyway, thanks for the kind words. I really appreciate it. And let me know how you make out with this. Billy Retro Time Gamer wanted to continue the conversation from last week about their streaming setup. And they confirmed that they have a bunch of consoles connected via a non-powered composite video switch going into their JVC PVM. And then they are taking the composite out of that JVC PVM to run to their RetroTINK 2X Pro, which is a perfect setup. That is a safe way of doing it. That is not a quote-unquote Y-cable setup. So that's a, a great streaming solution. And they were just looking for ways to make their stream a little bit better. I suggested just making sure that you point scale in, uh, or try going in RetroTINK 2X into pass-through mode and point scale to 720p which um, hopefully that has at least boosted a little bit of sharpness, but they said they will eventually get a RetroTINK 5X, especially after that new 3.0 firmware update. So the follow-up question is this. While going direct in and doing point scaling the 720p might be totally fine for now and might be a signal boost, when they do go to uh, 1080p, what capture card do I know of works well with Linux? And that is a question that I don't have a good answer to because it also depends on what Linux distro you're using and a whole bunch in what your Linux skills are because certain cards like the Datapath cards will absolutely work in other distros, but you have to be able to add the driver in yourself, which is way harder than doing it on any kind of Windows machine. And I know Linux folk are probably rolling their eyes now like, F you, Bob, it's not that hard. It is if you've never done it before. I could barely fumble my way through it, and I've been fumbling with Linux for years now, and it still annoys the shit out of me. Sorry, Linux folk, just being honest here. So I would say just look at all of the specs of each of these cards and make sure that it specs out Linux, but also a distro. And it's definitely the case with the Datapath cards, which get those used. They're extremely expensive new. Uh, but I would kind of just look through and figure that out. And if anybody has any suggestions, please let me know because my Linux knowledge is near zero. So it's, uh, you know, it's more than your average person, but less than any Linux nerd, far less. So if anybody has any suggestions, please let us know. But I would like to know the answer to that myself. And hopefully there'll be a Linux distro out soon that kind of focuses on streamers and stuff that packs in way more drivers than your average distro would. 
so that you could have all of this stuff just plug and play. Couple of questions from Mr. Morrow. They have a Memorex MT2028D CRT, and they want to know first, they could hear the 15 kilohertz whine even when they record audio for streams. Do I have any personal experience with removing that whine from a recording, or do I just live with it and record video and audio separately at all times whenever possible? I just live with it. I think it's kind of charming. I also think it's hysterical when younger people hear it and they have they think the TV is about to blow up because they've never heard it before. Um, and I think it's to the point where I could definitely still hear it, but I just I've, I'm so used to it, I don't notice it anymore. And I do realize that at some point I'm going to get old enough where my hearing won't even hear it anymore. Shockingly enough, I still have really good hearing. I don't know how after all the hundreds of metal shows I've been to, but I just kind of live with it. And if it's really loud, like if you've used CRTs before that are the same size and it's significantly louder, there could actually be a problem with it. So you might want to look into repairs or, you know, check out Steve from Retrotech's Patreon or something like that. But if you're just talking about your standard 15 kilohertz wine, I, I kind of like it just for its weird charm, I guess. Next, do I know of any alternatives for the Shiny Bow distribution amp that handles composite S-video and component? They have a passive unpowered component plus S-Video switch, but it seems like to get a splitter going, they would need that particular splitter or just rethink their entire setup and use an Extron crosspoint with an S-Video splitter. I don't. Uh, I don't know of any other devices like that. Um, I think if you're looking for multiple outputs and multiple inputs of different uh, signal formats, I would just get a crosspoint. Even an 8x2 or an 8x4 or something like that should get everything that you need and yes, you would have to end up buying those S-Video to BNC Y splitter thingies. Different than a splitting circuit. It's splitting, it's breaking out the Y and C signals from one connector to two. So it is technically a Y cable for anybody listening, but you're not splitting the circuit. You're separating each individual circuit. So that's kind of a pain, but, you know, as long as you end up getting a cross point that works, it should be fine. Just... You know, not that I have problems with cross points, but I do have to politely remind everybody that when you're buying a used piece of equipment, it could work for a day or it could work for 20 years. You just, you never know. So that's just kind of something out there where I always try to recommend more modern solutions, especially ones built specifically for retro gaming if they're available. But that just kind of sounds like a solution that would be perfect for you. So think about that and see, but I think getting a cross point and some of those S-Video to BNC adapters would be a good a good solution for you. D posted a couple of questions, and in the interest of everybody's time, I'm going to skip to the answers, but I read absolutely every word, and I think they're great questions. So the first one is kind of interesting, because what if you're somebody who's like an electrical engineer who works for, with a company that has some kind of employee agreement that says anything that you make when you're employed with them is technically their intellectual property? How does somebody like that handle working on open source free projects like the Mister or any of the amazing open source projects in retro gaming. And I have an opinion on this. I change my opinions all the time. Every time I get more info on a subject, I listen and I reevaluate. So as of right now, when I'm recording, here's my opinion, but please don't hold me to this. And in fact, maybe do the opposite. I don't know. But if you were working for a gaming company that made gaming products and you used your work to both help your company and release open source or private projects, I would think that is in complete violation and I would never do anything like that. However, if you're in a position where you're making, I don't know, uh, products 
for uh, to detect somebody's heartbeat in the medical field. And you also work on the Tempest core for the Mister. I just wouldn't mention it to the company at all, and I would consider that a gray area. Now, once again, this is an opinion, and this is not legal advice. Legally speaking, if you sign an employee agreement, then your company might technically own that Tempest core, even though you've released it under open source licenses. That is a gray area. However, you working on a core for Tempest, and I keep saying that because I would love to see an original Tempest core, but you working on that will absolutely in no way, shape, or form take away any money or profit from your company that sells medical-grade heart monitors, period. There's just, there is no overlap. And in fact, one might argue that evolving your skill set would contribute to any troubleshooting and problem-solving skills you have for your day job. Because even if you don't use any type of programming language uh, in your day job, learning more skills is always a good thing. So... I kind of have a fairly strong opinion on that. I'm sure there's always going to be a scenario in which somebody has an actually in the comments like, well, what if your company does both, but you don't work for that side of the company? I don't know. You're going to have to evaluate that yourself. But for me personally, that is definitely how I would always approach this. And technically speaking, I started retro RGB when I worked for a company that made medical grade products, but nothing I've done has ever overlapped in a way that would have ever taken away from their profit at all so i never had any problems just doing that and, and keep going same thing with you know i started a band and registered that company while i was working for another company and no one's suing me for writing music when i worked for a, you know a, as a consultant under contract for a medical grade computer company so just my opinions on that and also where, what country you're from and even in the u.s what state you work in it's very different on how they they come after you for violating those things because in certain states like if you sign non-compete and you you go work for a different company that makes medical grade heart monitors and your original company sues you unless they could prove depending on the state unless they could prove that you stole stuff that you worked on when you were there they can't tell you to quit your new job because then how are you going to pay your bills and pay your taxes and all that other stuff so depending on the state you might even be able to get away with stuff like that. So I just think I approach these things morally more than I do legally. Once again, not a lawyer. This is terrible legal advice, but I approach these things morally. And if you're working for a company that does nothing in the gaming scene, then I don't, I can't imagine that would be a problem. Uh, next up, they wanted to know a couple of questions about analog video signals and the RGB blaster. And I think what you need to keep in mind when you're looking this stuff up is of course it's always good to read the data sheets and the specifications but you need to very you need to always keep at the very front of your brain that these older consoles kind of sort of adhered to that and they were within a large range of tolerance and even just by the very nature of how the products were made so when we now in the retro gaming scene make products and add-on boards we'll use one percent tolerance resistors because it'll drive the price of these boards up a dollar or two but if you were Sony and Nintendo and Sega back in the day making these products, doing that would have lost you millions of dollars for a difference that nobody would have been able to detect back then. Uh, even if you had a PVM that you brought to home from work, you still probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference in most cases. So this whole 714 millivolts, uh, you know, so 0.7 volts aiming for the RGB levels, is a good target except what are you going to do if you have 
something like a Famicom that's hotter than another, because you could test five of these things on a scope and get five very different results. So we in the retro gaming scene aim for RGB output that's just under 700 millivolts on the RGB lines, because if it goes below, you just turn your brightness up and that's it. If it goes over a little bit, you start washing out colors. It's probably not that bad. At first, you might even like it because, oh, it's brighter, and then it'll take you a while to realize some of the colors are washing out. And then if it goes way over, you could potentially damage equipment, but that would have to be, that's extreme. Like, I've never seen, I've never seen a scenario like that in which you would damage equipment, unless it was something like a super gun where you have pots that you could crank up. But, uh, so that's why, generally speaking, aiming for, you know, 699 millivolts is something that you should kind of go for in your setups. And even if, in the case of the RGB blaster, you're setting it up to work on your specific Famicom, don't, what if you get another Famicom one day? So if you nail it at 714 millivolts, you find the exact resistors, and then you get another Famicom one day, what if that's 780, 800? You're not going to kill anything, but your colors are going to be washed out. On the sync line, that's when things get a little bit more complicated because what is your target device? Is your target device a VGA monitor, an Extron piece of equipment, or is it a SCART device? Then if it's a SCART device, you always, always, always want it to be less than 900 millivolts, but I usually aim for 500-ish. Uh, you know, most of the stuff that we work on is actually in the 400s. And it should be totally fine to go all the way up to 9, maybe even pushing a volt, maybe. But it's just good practice because SCART equipment is not designed to handle much more than that at all. Whereas on the flip side of things, if you're going into an Extron Crosspoint, you need the higher voltage in most cases for it to work, or like a VGA monitor. So when you're thinking about stuff like this, it's not just about thinking in the context of, okay, here's what they recommend for analog video signals. It's the total setup and where that setup might evolve in the future, which is why it's so annoying. And the last question is about the five connector BNC adapter that comes with the RG bench. The five connectors are red, green, blue, H-Sync, and V-Sync. So that's essentially a VGA signal. And when you're using RGBS, what's in SCART and what's in pretty much all of retro gaming, then you're going to want to use H-Sync as sync and just leave off that last one. Um, so this is one of those things where if you're using a four-port Rigel scope, I would probably suggest leaving the last one just kind of hanging, and now you could have your RGBS connections working and only redo your setup when you're trying to test VGA. If you're using one of those cheap $30 scopes, then you could just connect uh, whichever signal that you need at a time. But hopefully that was a pretty clear answer. But getting getting to know sync signals and how it uh, how it differentiates between consoles and cable types and all this other stuff is very confusing, but it sounds like you already have a pretty solid grasp on this, so it shouldn't be too hard for you to kind of get a little farther along with it. Quantum Guitar wanted to follow up on their last question. They did get a chance to run their friend's RGB blaster while syncing on the original composite video from the AV Famicom with the PBM 1340. They ran composite video into the composite input, and out the composite output into the sync input so they could switch back and forth between the original composite and RGB, and it worked. They could see that the brightness may have been a little dim, but the sharpness of the RGB signal in comparison was astounding. The brightness is probably because of the fix that's required, but continuing. Um, hard to believe it was still partially being generated from an original piece of hardware. 
They may have been a couple of lines offset vertically between the two sources, though it's hard to say. Could also be the settings of the monitor, by the way. But this was their friend's first time actually opening up and trying out the RGB blaster because of design issues. And because of the design issues, he's quite excited to have the repair work done so he can use it more easily. So that's awesome. That's a really fun thing to test. That's very cool. That just proves even more how this is a zero latency added device. And I'm pretty sure that anything that you're seeing in this is either a result of needing to swap out the components to get the brightness up or just the configuration settings of the monitor between RGB and comp uh, composite. But thanks for following up. That's really cool. It's so neat to know that that works. Couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First, they recently just watched John Linneman's Digital Foundry review on the GoldenEye ports, and John talked about downsampling, where video was rendered at higher resolutions internally and then downscaled before hitting the console's output. And the purpose of this is to produce a higher resolution and a clearer image while you still kind of have a blockier look that's more reminiscent to the original. And you really would have to watch John's video to understand why you would want to do this. And I guess the short answer is because it hides a lot of the weird artifacts that are a result of stuff like this. But Jason wanted to know if I had any experience with this. And I, I do and I don't. I think the experience I have is when messing with downscaling on RGB monitors. And that's kind of different to what, what John is talking about. That's really more for playing older stuff on modern displays and that is going to come down to preference because i guarantee some people will look at the final image that is scaled all the way up to 4k and go this definitely looks better and other people are going to see the downsampled image that looks blockier and doesn't have as but it doesn't have as many of the side effects of it so i think it comes down to personal preference and i i do think that John was right that in the context of porting an N64 game to a modern console, downsampling should have been something that was at least available as an option. I also think a, a buggy 60 frames per second mode that you have to go into the settings to toggle on and there's a little warning, this is a beta, this is unsupported mode. I think that would have been awesome too. But, you know, we all have to kind of remember that when companies are paid to do these ports, they have a very finite amount of time to do it. Whereas... As hobbyists in the community, we could take 10 years to do a port or something and do it perfectly where they probably have a couple of months. So definitely agree with John on that one, but I, I see the dev side as well. Um, next, uh, you know, Jason also wanted to know what I thought about the impl implications that technique could have for retro content like early 3D stuff. Um, I would agree with John in that everything that I just said would apply to any 3D game, not just GoldenEye. I think that's something that it's going to be really up to you, but I do think things like the texture packs for Mario 64 and Goldeneye actually are something that I would kind of lean more towards. Next, um, what do I think of the idea of experimenting with multiple different scalers together for various purposes? I don't like it at all. Now, that's just an opinion. There's nothing, uh, there's no safety issues with it as long as you're using the right equipment. But the only time I've ever combined scalers was when I needed compatibility fix for the OSSC. So when I was using a 50-inch Panasonic Plasma, I bought a DVDO VP50, and I ran the OSSC into that. And that was back when the OSSC didn't even have 1080p output. So not only did it normalize it, but it stretched it to 1080p and only added about a frame of lag. So that I thought was cool. Um, obviously something like downscaling. So if you want to go 
uh, multiple converters. So converting HDMI to component and then through the RetroTank 5X to downscale, that's something I've used. But, you know, I just, I don't really see the point in that much manipulation of the image. And for experimental purposes, I think that stuff is always fun and it's neat to see the final effect. But you have to remember that every piece of equipment you put in an analog video signal will degrade the image. Now, how much is it going to degrade it? Running it through a switch, if you analyze it on a scope and zoom in 10,000 times, you might see a difference. But on your flat panel or you know even a calibrated BVM, you're probably not going to see a difference running it through a good switch. But what if you just keep adding stuff to it? Now you have a switch, you have a transcoder, you have scalar 1, you have scalar 2. You could probably end up with a, a very degraded image at the end of all of that. And what do you really kind of gain out of it? One interesting idea that Jason threw out there was kind of like the downsampling. What if you do something like take a RetroTank 5X to deinterlace and scale 480i PS2 content to 1080p and then use another scaler to drop that down to 480p for something like maybe on a, a VGA monitor? Do you get that same downsampling effect? And that's neat and that's something to mess with. I don't think it's the same because I think in the context of the Digital Foundry review, that's downsampling something that has been rendered in a higher resolution, not just scaling back and forth. But I've never tried it, so maybe that's awesome. But, you know, and just to echo Jason's point there, they don't suggest anyone do this. It's just curious from a point of of experimentation. And would there be scenarios in mixing scalers uh, that would actually add something? If the M cable did what its shady marketing described, that might be another scenario in which you could add that to a mix as well. But... I, I kind of like to keep it all in one when whenever possible for all the reasons. And lastly, speaking of the M cable, Jason wants to know if I know of any upgrades to things like anti-aliasing devices like the M cable, and will things like the RetroTank 4K or OSSC Pro apply stuff like that, but since you could scale it to higher resolutions, apply it to uh, apply it in a, a better way to smooth it out more. Because remember how those work is as you're doubling, tripling, quadrupling the image, it merges the jaggy edges together with each upsample. So uh, I don't know if they're going to be in there, and I don't know if, even if it's possible with a RetroTank 4K, I don't know if Mike would make that a launch day feature. I think launch day for something like that would just be able to have solid, stable firmware with a bunch of features that are not available on the Tank 5X, and then add the extras like that kind of as they go. But that's just my opinion. I don't really know. Uh, but I would love to see that something like that as well, just because I do absolutely understand the benefits of the M cable. And I think that Amped, Snow Amped 2 snowboarding game on Xbox when run in 720p, I think that's the perfect example of when that device does exactly what its marketing claims. And there's just 99% of other scenarios I've used that it's kind of useless. So... But it doesn't seem to add any lag, so feel free to use that. Uh, but yeah, I just, I wouldn't really mix up different processors and scalers unless you needed to, um, or if you needed to solve a specific problem, or if you're just nuts like Jason and I and want to do some experiments just to see what would happen. Well, that's it for this time. If you're new to these Q&As and you want to ask a question, just go wherever it is that you support and ask your question in the latest Q&A post. And it's anywhere you support. These last few have been only on Patreon just because that's where the questions are. 
but anybody who supports is absolutely welcome to ask a question. Just make sure to put it in that latest post because I can't figure out what's a new question on an older Q&A post. And also, I like just kind of casually scrolling through in real time and answering like you saw today, just because I think it makes it more more laid back and more like we're hanging out, having a chat somewhere. But anyway, as always, thanks so much to anybody who supports in any way possible, and I'll see you next week.